Dang, how kind is that? I want to listen to that guy. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Yeah, that was terrible. Uh, I had to go through the uh, inspection uh, station in Blythe for you people. So I want more. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right, yes. I have a hidden agenda, and I, will t I won't hide it from you. I'm hoping I'm funny. I'm hoping I'm good, that I'm in the moment, that I have something to say so that you'll want me back because we love it here. <laughs> we don't like Arizona. <laughs> the land of eternal glare. Yeah, just, so please, just we just want to come back sometime. <laughs> We'll pay. <laughs> oh, you guys. Okay. Um, let me start with a slide. That first slide that says the objective. The objective is not to build communities appearing to have sin under control. The objective, and it's beautifully being lived out here at Seacoast, the objective is to nurture a place where people can stop faking that they have sin under control. Where they can come out of hiding and let others into their sin and failure. There, sin loses power. And we can be healed, trusting Christ's redemption, forgiveness, and repentance. Uh, it's messy. <laughs> but it's utter utterly healthy. And those who live in it, they become free. And as they learn to receive love as a byproduct, they sin less. Let me tell you a little bit about myself because it'll help explain my words later on. I grew up here in Southern California, just up the road, uh, up the freeway, and off a little bit to the next freeway on the 10 um, out in Upland, California. And it was great. It was just a beautiful time. And I, I, I was a baseball pitcher, and uh, it, it was just a great experience. And my family in high school moved uh, to Phoenix, Arizona. And, and I became a really good pitcher. I became All-State. And uh, I was a student body president. And the homecoming queen was my girlfriend. It, it was good to be John Lynch. And then I went to college to play and pitch at Arizona State, and I blew out my arm. I, I, was, I was supposed to have Tommy John surgery, but Tommy John hadn't had it yet. Uh, <laughs> and this is a sad part of the story. The homecoming queen, uh, she left me for a better pitcher. Yeah. I, I don't blame her. I'm the guy had a slider that dropped off the table. <laughs> I was attracted to him. I mean, <laughs> but it did something to me. How, how could someone who had known me for so long, known so much about me, known the deep, hard things and good things about, how could she leave me? And shame um, added another layer into my experience. 
shame. Uh, you know what guilt is. Guilt says you've done something wrong. Shame says there is something uniquely, irreparably, erratically wrong with who you are. And no matter what you do, it's not going to change. And we all can see it. That's what shame hisses at us. So this straight jock kid who had probably never had two beers, I, I, I didn't know what to do. And I, I gave up that straight life and I just went to wander. I got a 60 Volkswagen and I just started wandering. I didn't know what was going to come next. I, I did everything I said I would never do. I, I tried to get every drug I could get my hands on. I slept with women who were not my wife. I was just checked out. I was broken hearted. I ended up in Tucson, um, and I had risen to the high career position of spraying um, numerals onto curbs and I was uh, selling plasma to get more dope. And then a thought came over me. You know, John, you should go into teaching. <laughs> Here, kids, come, follow me. Yeah. But I did. I went back and I got my teaching certificate at Arizona State. And I got a, I got a job teaching high school at our Arcadia High School in Phoenix, Arizona teaching English and drama. And I didn't know at the first play that I cast, two-thirds of the cast uh, were young life kids. Now, my dad was a Mensa atheist. He was a top half of Mensa, and we were atheists. That's what we were. That's just what we did. There was no God in any part of our world. And and and. For adults, I could always buy you off with, yeah, yeah, what about the people in India? You know, I, I could always buy, but these were kids. And they would stay after rehearsal and they would talk to me about Jesus and I would let them. And then someone at the same time uh, got me a Keith Green album. And then someone got me uh, Dylan's Slow Train Coming. And I thought, if Dylan's becoming a Christian, the boat door has to be closing. <clears throat> and one morning I got my, I laced up my tennis shoes and I was going to go out to run and I went, uh-oh. December 23rd, 1979. I said, it's going to happen today, isn't it? And I got down on my knees. I don't know if I saw that in Leave it to Beaver or what, but I... I, I thought I should get down on my knees and I prayed, Jesus, please, I don't want to become weird. Please, please. I've seen them. They are so weird. But I want you to come into my heart, whatever that means. Forgive my sins. I want to be yours. That's all I know. I love you. I don't know why you would have me. I've mocked your name forever. Please let this take place. Please let it take hold. And I got up, and I felt so different. It was like God said, oh, the guy's taking acid. I've got to give him something big here. And so I just felt like explosive. I felt like I could just 
walk into a Walmart and say, you there, over there, sir, fall down on your knees and trust Jesus. And the guy would go, all right. It was incredible. I went down to the Bible. I got a black Bible. I knew it had to be black to be legal. And, and, And I started reading it. It was during Christmas break. And so I was reading it like 10, 12 hours a day. The first time through, I was just going through the New Testament, the Old Testament. And I'd I'd write, I'd underline. Then the second time I'd go through, I'd write, yay, God. And and then I'd have little fireworks coming off of verses. It was, someone said, "You, you are built to go to a place. There's a place for people like you. And I said, where is this place? It's a place called Seminary. Seminary. Yes, they read the Bible all day long and talk about it. I said, well, I must go to this place. Uh, but, but, no, 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 I can't. I know these people. They wear, they wear corduroy coats with those elbow patches and they smoke pipes and stuff. And Not for me. That's not my, but he convinced me, no, 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 God's doing a whole new thing. So, long story, I filled out the applications. They had Tell us about your Christian experience. None. Uh, what, what, uh, what influences have you had? Uh, I watched the movie Heidi once. I had nothing. I had nothing. I said, guys, I have my retirement from my teaching, which is about $2,000. That's all I have. And they said, come. And I did. And I have four years. Beautiful, just beautiful. I learned Greek, I learned Hebrew, systematic theology. But even though it was an excellent seminary, something about that seminary mixed with me didn't get it. I knew Jesus, but there was something missing. I I became a religious man. This guy who all he wanted to do at the start was get on his 10-speed bike and, and, and ride across the country and go into coffee shops and tell people about Jesus. Suddenly, I, I was religio man. <laughs> Hi, how's your walk with Gawad? I could do it in four syllables. How's your walk with Gawad? <laughs> religio man. And all of a sudden, I found myself trying to appear pastoral and wise and together and godly. I was pretending to like things that I didn't, and I was afraid to admit that I didn't like things that I still did. I was afraid to admit struggles in my new marriage. I was afraid to talk about wrong thoughts and feelings that I still had. I was this loner dude who thought he was better than everybody because I had some theology and some books. In the middle of the Gospel of John is this verse from Jesus. I'm going to give you a new commandment. It's, it's not the 11th commandment. It is a whole new order of commandment. And for the first time, you guys are a people who can obey this command without it causing you to rebel or to run. 
because you've got a new heart, a brand new heart that can hear command and not rebel and not run. Instead, you're built for it. You want to do this more than anything else. It's not really even a command. It's like saying, eat more chocolate. If it'll help the team. He says, here's the command. Love one another. If you get that right, get everything right. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, that you love one another. A really good um, side definition for love is it is the process of meeting needs. Love, anything else is hallmark sentimentality. Love is the process of meeting needs. You, you almost always in Scripture, when you hear God or, or the Son talking about love, it's always in terms of meeting a need. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so that's the deal. How do I earn your permission to be trusted so that I can love you, so that I can meet needs. You know what's so crazy? God himself created you and I with limitations. Do you know that? Not, not, Not the fall. He actually created limitations in me. Why? Why would he do that? so that I could be loved. So that you would be able to love me. So that I would need you. See, without a need to be met, you could admire me, you can respect me. But when we bluff like we don't have needs, hey, I'm doing fine, how are you doing? Doing, just doing great, everybody's fine. I don't get loved. I can get respected. I can get admired, but I don't get loved. And when I wear a mask that per- puts on a persona, only my mask gets loved. So, so, so you take that verse of Jesus, and then you go over to Galatians six two, and it's fascinating. He says, Paul now picks it up thirty some years later and says. I want you to bear one another's burdens. And when you do, you will fulfill the law of Christ, the one back in John 13, 34. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to earn trust of other people so that you can bear their burdens, so that they will come to you with the real stuff so that when they fail, you will draw closer. It's, it's really literally to get under and lift. That's our privilege. Oh, now I, how do I do that? Well, I'm going to have to learn a different way of seeing who I am. 
so I don't see it as a burden because Christ lives in me. The most real me doesn't want to get away with anything. The most real me wants to love like crazy. It's who I am. I'm not John Lynch, save sinner anymore. I'm John Lynch, Christ in John Lynch. Christ. You have to do it with that Irish little trill like that. It doesn't count. But I'm fused with Jesus. I can't tell where he ends off and I start up. Isn't that beautiful? I'm not just this saved sinner disappointing to God and God saying, yeah, you had to pray your little prayer, didn't you? Yeah, you're going to heaven, but I don't like you. I never liked you. There'll be no armrest padding on your chair in heaven, I'll tell you that much right now. No, instead, he's crazy about you. There's nobody on this planet that he loves more than you. He adores you. And he says, I will be fused with you. Your real name is Christ in you. Whew. Romans 6.14 makes this incredible statement. It, it feels like it promises too much. Sin will not be your master. Right smack dab in the middle of Romans 5 through 7, which is 5 through 8, which is maybe the most beautiful place to discover who we are in Christ. And right smack dab in the middle of Romans 5 through 8 in 6.14, he says, sin will not be master over you because you're no longer under law. Yet under grace, grace, sin will not be master over you because you're no longer under moralism, buck-upism, striving, bluffing, pretending, putting your best foot forward, acting, wearing a mask, trying real hard to prove to God that you're enough, that you're worthy of his love. No, no, no. Sin will not be master over you because you're no longer under any of that stuff, but you're under grace. There's a power, an explosive power in this grace. Grace, 122 times in the New Testament. You can't say it except for in Scottish or Irish. For this is the manner in which God speaks. Grace. Oh, and the Judaizers, they said, Paul, don't you dare. Don't talk, you don't talk about grace so much. Because these people, they're vermin. They're, 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 they want to do Christianity light. They'll take advantage of that. That's what they'll do. They'll be down at the dog track with some Johnny Walker. These people, you've got to put a lid on it. You've got to give them some something other. I mean, if you want to use grapes like a condiment like paprika, you can do that but it's got to be something more. And Paul says to the Judaizers, Romans 5 through 8, hey, guys, thank you for your sincerity, but I got to tell you, these, um, these vermin that you're talking about, these ones who want to do Christianity light, um, they've put their hope in me. They've, they've trusted Jesus. 
Uh, and um, by the way, the Holy Spirit lives in them to encourage them, to draw them, to renew them, to challenge them. Look, you can, you can get outward expressions of ob obedience that are not obedience at all. But if you want heartfelt obedience that would cause me to be able to crawl into God's lap and be safe, not take grace, not take grace. Let me give those definitions of grace. Grace is the absolute and unforced favor gained by Christ's death and resurrection, allowing God to be completely for us and endlessly in love with us apart from anything we must prove. Grace is an actual realm a way of life in which we no longer strive for acceptance. We mature and heal and are released into his intentions by trusting that Jesus and all of his power is fused into us, creating an entirely new person. We doggies. Yeah. And maybe let me put this next one up there just because I know there's that fear. The grace of God is not to free us from obeying the heart of God. Grace is the nutrient-rich soil that seeds of truth drop into so they're not choked by the self-condemnation of failure. Instead, no longer afraid of God's disgust, we can now obey God from the heart rather than from compliance. And we grow into a beautiful, healthy, life-giving tree that gives shade and safety to others. That's what grace does. Beautiful, beautiful. Second Timothy. It's all over Scripture. I don't know what, what fell over us that we have so much fear of grace. When we have fear of grace, it's because we do not know what has happened to us. Yes, if we were still a safe sinner without a new heart, you ought to be afraid of grace. But because I have a brand new heart, remember, I don't want to get away with anything. It's only when I'm around bad religion that I want to rebel or hide. But, but the most real me with Christ in me, I want to give my life away. 2 Timothy 2.1 says, My son, you be strong. And you expect him to say in the diligence and the grinding it out. But he says, you be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Acts 20.32, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able alone to build you up. Hebrews 4.16, let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace that will help us in those times of need, those hard times, those chronic times, those confusing times, those pandemic times where it seems like life will never get back and I can't make sense of any of it. That's what grace is for. 
Romans 5, 2, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace ignites the power of my new identity in Christ. Grace neutralizes sin's power by freeing me from the law. You know what the law does? Um, let me the law is that sign in the park. I'm walking along just fine on the sidewalk, enjoying this park. Then I see a sign that says, don't walk on the grass. Well, I wasn't going to, but now I will. Excuse me. I will spend the rest of my life just killing grass, spelling out the Lynch family name in dead grass. That's what the law does. And Jesus says, I have fulfilled the law, kid. Grace trades in my anemic strength for his power. Grace takes away the weariness of bluffing adequacy. Grace destroys abandonment, rejection, condemnation. Grace says you're accepted and loved and enjoyed always. Grace says he is never disgusted or angry with you on your worst day. Grace pours the blood of Jesus over every offense. Grace puts a robe of Christ's righteousness around me and it never comes off. You're fully righteous, fully holy. Grace says as a... Question his taste, but don't question his character. He says to the exact extent, this is Jesus talking, to the exact extent that my Father loves me. And I'm thinking that's some pretty significant love. To the exact extent that my Father loves me, so also I love you. And you. And you. And you, and you, and you. This whole section. You, you, you. Back there, not so much. But, but, but you know what I'm saying. No. It's incredible. All of us. That blows me away, knowing my past, that that's true. Grace says, I'll never give up on you. I'll never grow tired of you. Grace says, you're a new creation, a categorically new creature. Your old life's over and has no claims on you. Grace says, my love has no gradations. No matter what you do, I cannot love you more and I will not love you less. And grace allows me a blamelessness that can allow me to receive criticism and correction without it defining me. I, 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 try, I was trying to make sense of this. I was writing things, I was writing books, but, I was, but my kids were starting to grow up now. And it was one thing for me to hold these truths, but now Caleb was 10 and Amy was 8 and Carly was 3. And it had to hold. This had to be real now. It mattered. And so I found myself writing this piece called, called God's Great New Testament Gamble. It's, it's in the book that I've got out there. Um, see, we saw God in his power. But we never saw him in his person in the Old Testament. We saw him in his power. And we ran and we hid, and we come back, and we ran, and we hid. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm kind, and I'm gentle. Come here. Come here. 
I want you to see me. You'll find rest for your souls. And so I kind of imagine God talking and turning all the cards over. I, I call it the great New Testament gamble. Him saying, what if I tell them who they are? What if I take away any element of fear and condemnation or judgment or rejection? What if I tell them that I love them, that I'm always going to love them, that I can't love them any more than I love them right now, and I love them right now no matter what they've done as much as I love my only son? That there's nothing they can do to make my love go away? What if I told them they were righteous with my righteousness right now? What if I told them they could stop beating themselves up, that they could stop beating so stiff and form and formal and jumpy and weird around me? What if I told them I was absolutely crazy about them? What if I told them even if they ran to the ends of the earth and did the most unthinkable, horrible things when they came back, I would receive them with tears in a party? What if I told them I do not keep a log of past offenses of how little they pray or made promises that they don't keep? What if I told them they don't have to be owned by men's religious additions or traditions? What if I told them if they're, I'm their savior, they're going to heaven no matter what, it's a done deal? What if I told them they had a new nature, that they were saints, not saved sinners who should now buck up and be better if you're any kind of a Christian after all he's done for you? What if I told them I actually live in them now? that I've put my love and power and nature inside them at their disposal? What if I told them that they don't ever, ever have to put on a mask, that it's absolutely perfect to be exactly who they are at this moment? What if they knew that they don't have to look over their shoulder for fear if things get too good, the other shoe's going to drop? What if they knew if they put any kind of hope in me at all that I will never, ever, 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 use the word punish in relation to them? What if they were convinced that bad circumstances are not my way of evening the score for taking advantage of me? What if they knew our basis of our friendship wasn't on how little they sinned, but on how much they let me love them? What if they had permission to try and depress me in any, impress me in any way? What if I told them they could hurt my heart, but I'd try to never hurt theirs? What if I told them I, I kind of like Clapton's music too? that the these and the thous have confused me? What if I told them I never was really that fond of the Christmas handbell deal with the white gloves? What if I told them that they could open their eyes when they pray and still go to heaven? What if I told them it wasn't about their self-effort but allowing me to live my life through them? That's the New Testament gamble. And we're the guinea pig test. Well, I stumbled into an environment of grace and trust. I, I, I came there, I didn't know, I came there to wow them with my preaching and my seminary knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. And they loved me and endured me. And gently the environment pulled me from a doctrine of performance, buck up epistemology, and replaced it with new identity and grace and love and joy and no condemnation and freedom and trust and safety and vulnerability and playfulness. And that theological shift, you guys, it has allowed me to no longer hide, to trust others with me, to accept that God's never ashamed of what is his, 
exactly really true about me presently. To rest in my new identity and the Spirit's power to grow me up from the inside out. To cultivate authentic, vulnerable relationships. So what if we, Seacoast, what, what if we, and I say we because you're going to invite me back and everything, what if we courageously began to nurture relationships and communities of grace where godliness is not based on appearances of how many wrong things you do not do, where we applaud exposure and we don't reject those who are failing, where the environment is safe enough for me to try out my faith instead of bluffing it, where the goal is not that anything gets fixed, but that nothing ever has to be hidden. Where we put our effort and learn how to love rather than attempting to manage our sin. Well, you guys, I am an answer to such a question because I grew up in one of those things. I've learned acceptance and submission and humility and trust. I've learned heartfelt obedience over compliance. I'm able to work harder in grace than by any other motivation. I've worked through horribly hard stuff without having to run. I've learned to trust the power of this new life in me. I'm no longer hidden. I do not wear a mask. I'm able to offer freedom for others to not hide. I'm able to help others to Jesus. I'm no longer trying to impress you with the appearance of godliness. That ship has sailed. And so, how does this work? It allows a vulnerability and authenticity. It allows, it allows you to get to know me. Not the idealized me, but me. So what if I was real? What if I let myself be known? Not just transparent appearing with no intention of letting anyone help, but really known. And as soon as I say that, immediately the flashing back comes the girlfriend who left me after she knew so much about me. But God says, John, um, I already know. And I know what's coming up ahead. And I will not leave you. And I cannot love you any more than I do right now, and I will not love you less. I'll be your safety net and your exposure if you want to do that. Okay, what if you knew about me then? Some of these might be a little funny. Some of them are definitely not. Um, okay, so what if you knew that I didn't relate to or enjoy most of the Christian music that was available the first 15 years of my faith? Oh my gosh. It sounded like skating music. It was terrible, a lot of it. Some of it was great, but here's one of the songs, one of the big hits back in those days. <clears throat> I've got oil in my Ford, keep me trucking for the Lord. I got oil in my Ford, amen, hallelujah. People left Jesus because of that song. Oh my gosh. And what if you knew that I really do like Tom Waits and Bruce Coburn? and Laura Daigle, and Justin Vernon, and then the Wailing Jennies, and Jason Isbell, the Head and the Heart, John Hyatt, Bob Dylan, 
Ellis Paul, Keb Moe, and a Cajun band with a bunch of 75-year-olds called Little Feet. What if you know I get really uncomfortable in Christian bookstores? They're so quiet. I want to run around and pull my pants up and say, Hey, 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 everybody! We win, remember? <laughs> and you go up to the counter and they've got, they've got right there at the front of the counter these little things, testaments. You can buy. It has little Bible verses on them. Here, Floyd, come to Christ and have fresh breath. So they weird me out. What if I told you I'd rather visit the hand lotion boutique? Stacy always says, do you have to share this one? Um, that I'd rather visit the hand lotion boutiques with my wife than Home Depot with the guys. I'm just kidding. Um, and what if you knew that I am fragile and not strong? That I'm gifted in mercy and not ruling? And what if you knew that I don't pray as much or maybe the way that you think I should? What if you knew that I am sometimes faithless and I can, I can have incredible fears? What if you knew that my wife would tell you that sometimes I can make her feel stupid or, or like I'm her father when I bump her under the table when we're talking to another couple. What if you knew that about me? What if you knew that at parties and communities that I help nurture and start, I can feel alone and want to go home? What if I told you that I have this thing called neuropathy that just makes my feet burn real bad almost all the time? And, and I just want to go home. I want to blow out all my commitments to my family and everything else, and I just want to get off this planet. What if you knew that about me? What if you knew that in fifth grade I got violated? I got physically violated. And I never told anyone. Never told anyone till until after we had written the book True Face. I never told anyone because I didn't want you to pity me. I didn't want to lose my seat at the table. So, um, what if you knew those things about me? Would I be less godly? Hold on now. Hold on. Because I used to think so. But the godly are those who believe God. Period. The godly are not those who keep from doing enough wrong things. The godly are those who trust him with them. Would others find me to be less godly? Just the opposite's been my experience. And so the chameleon who spent a lifetime pretending he was someone else so that he could be loved and accepted is gradually learning to believe that he is accepted and loved fully already. And like the velveteen rabbit, he's becoming real. 
What if this was true? That the shed blood of Jesus was this powerful? That, that, that instead of your sin being here and Jesus being over there on the other side of it with his arms folded saying, I had so much hope for that kid, but he's disappointed me so many times. What if indeed he wasn't over there? But instead, because of the shed blood of Christ, he's able to walk all the way up and stand right in front of me. Like 18 inches away. And he puts his hands on my shoulders and he says, I love you so much. I'm crazy about you, kid. I got you. I got this. I've seen it before the world began and I've got you. And then he would pull me into a bear hug so tight, so hard. So... At first I want to say, no, no, you got the wrong guy. I don't deserve this. Stop, stop. And then I don't want him to stop. For I have waited for this all my life. To be known and held. And he keeps whispering, I know, kid. I've seen what's coming. I've got you. I'm not ashamed. I'm not disgusted. I got you. And he keeps holding me so tight until he's absolutely convinced that I believe him. And then and only then does he release his grip. He puts his arm around me so that we can look at my stuff together. And I've done this so many times. I've, I've, I've done this little scene so many times. Every single time I imagine the same thing. He's there, his arms around me, he's holding me, we're looking at my sin, and I imagine him going, <clears throat> wow, <laughs> my, 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 that's a lot of sin. Don't you ever sleep? And then he would say, and we'll deal with it when you're ready, kid. I love you so much. We got this. And you are ready in five and four and three and two and one. This is not religious consolation. This is your Jesus. This is the gospel that you and I have stumbled into. Welcome home.